Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Lead story on globalnews.ca, and uh, it's, it's absolutely stunning to read. The headline is, Staff are in shock. Documents reveal chaos inside Ontario's nursing home during uh, inside Ontario nursing home during COVID-19 outbreak. Stuart Bell, investigative journalist, joins us from Global News. Stuart uh, co-wrote that story, investigated it. Stuart, thank you very much for the time. And so the investigation begins March 17th, when at 9.29 a.m., a nurse called York Region Public Health in Ontario to report six residents at the Mark Haven Home for Seniors were sick. And that began a two-month COVID-19 outbreak. In the residence, which the executive director of the facility, you write, described as, quote, unprecedented, extremely time-consuming, chaotic, and stressful. Can you start us off? What happened? Yeah, well, we wanted to, uh, you know, we talk about long-term care and COVID uh, generally in in pretty sort of broad brush, um, you know, numbers and that kind of thing. We really wanted to sort of dig into one particular facility and just see what happened. So we looked into this. Uh, this home in Markham, Ontario, and, uh, you know, through interviews, and we gathered a lot of documents um, as well. And you can see, um, you know, as you mentioned, they, it all begins in March when uh, they have a number of residents begin to uh, become sick, runny nose, coughing, that kind of thing. And really within um, within the space of um, a week or two, uh, you've got several people with COVID, and it just sort of spiraled from there um, until we had, you know, 17, unfortunately, died, and more than 50 uh, staff and residents ended up coming down with COVID-19. But when you look at this, and when you look very closely, as we tried to do here, it's just sort of step-by-step, day-by-day. I think there's some lessons there that you can see where things just didn't work, where people weren't prepared, and... uh, how these kind of lessons are maybe universal for the whole system and things that we can learn from to uh, be better prepared. One of the issues at the very beginning of uh, the first wave was, of course, personal protective equipment, PPE. And that was a big issue at Mark Haven, wasn't it? With staff, are you right, wearing garbage bags and white painting suits and goggles, which goggles were shared in the early days with PPE being kept in a locked room? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and even beyond that, the the rules about using PPE were um, were quite strict. For example, initially, staff said they told us that they were only wearing PPE when they were dealing with residents who had been uh, tested positive for COVID nineteen. But then they would go out and uh, you know still go into the rooms of all the other residents in the dining hall. Uh, and so, and even the rules, according to the staff, weren't really quite clear so you know you can see here um just the lack of preparation and training not having enough ppe uh and and just not knowing how to use it properly were were issues here and um you know you think in something like a long-term care home that kind of knowledge and having that kind of uh equipment is so critical not just for covid19 but these are institutions that deal with flu and all kinds of outbreaks all the time. And they should really be better prepared uh, and have a better understanding of how to deal with these things. Stuart, it's an amazing story. And what really uh, made me read several sections several times 
was the public health authorities had a tense relationship with the homes management. Um, it, I think in two weeks it had reached the point where management informed public health they were close to transferring patients out, and it got worse from there. Yeah, that's another issue, and that's maybe a key issue here, is that there was not a good relationship between the homes management and the public health officers who were trying to deal with this. Um, you can see in, in this case, uh, of course, public health wanted immediately to know um, the, the first resident who came down with COVID-19. They wanted to know who had visited the facility, who had visited that room. Um, and uh, the home just basically said they were unable to do that. Um, and so, and, and it took, you know, you can see several weeks later, public health officers are still asking for that information. So, and it's a critical thing to, to trade, to do the contact tracing. And uh, it just fell apart here. And, and that's also an issue that you can see uh, in some of the research that's already been done about, um, for example, why Ontario long-term care homes didn't do so well compared to, say, in B.C., is that there seems to be um, a much better relationship in some other regions like B.C. between the, uh, the long-term care homes and uh, the, the other health bodies, the, the um, health regions, the hospitals, and that kind of thing. And so that's another area in Ontario in particular that they seem to really need to work at, and it's very glaringly obvious here that... Um, the relationship between, um, you know, those two entities was, you know, just fell apart during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned contact tracing and uh, tracing how the virus entered the home remained a major issue throughout your story, your account, particularly with the staffing numbers so critical. And one option that I found this stunning was to view over 500 hours of video footage of the residents in order to determine who'd been there. So that takes us back to the tense relationship between public health and the now remaining members of this severely understaffed residence. Yeah, again, this is <laughs> this is a baffling part of this whole thing. But yes, as you say, uh, public health immediately on, uh, you know, as soon as COVID-19 was confirmed to have entered this home, public health wanted to know who had visited the home. They needed to try and identify who had brought it in and who made a might have been in the home and possibly be spreading it or carrying it. Um, and the home's management basically said no. Um, they said that they didn't have sign-in sheets that really described who was visiting who, and they didn't have the time to deal with, and, uh, you know, with contact tracing. And so they, they basically invited public health to come in and view uh, their security camera footage, which is 500 hours per camera for the time period there. So, you know, clearly... Um, there was issues there, and you know, and the ultimately the public health um, investigators never were able to determine um, how it entered the home, uh, and that's you know uh, that, that's an issue, and it's something that uh, uh, you know the province possibly needs to look at here. Is how, you know every time you go to a restaurant now or a bar or anywhere, uh, they take your cell number, they take your name, right? Um, yes. These people going into a nursing home during a pandemic, early stages of pandemic, but uh, and the records that were kept by the home were not, you know, adequate to do any um, contact tracing. Apparently, so uh, that's yeah, that was a that was a big issue. And the headline of the story on globalnews.ca: Global News is staff are in shock. Documents reveal chaos inside Ontario nursing home during COVID nineteen outbreak. When were the families of the residents informed? Well, they were um, 
they were informed of the the outbreak immediately. The the home basically would send emails every day or every couple of days, um, updating them on the situation. the The emails they received weren't necessarily um, they were reassuring. I would say not necessarily consistent with what was really going on. Uh, for example, um, you can see uh, th- there's one day in particular where the home has basically told uh, the local health body that they just can't sustain what's happening and um, they they even talk about potentially shutting down and just taking all the residents out. Um, That same day, the email that went to the families was that everything was was fine. So um, so there was uh, a different message that seemed to be going uh, to families as opposed to um, what was happening in the exchanges between the actual management of the home and the health authorities. So one more question for you here, Stuart, on the story. Nearby nursing homes, you're right, didn't lose any residents, but Markham saw, Markhaven rather, saw 56 positive COVID tests and 17 deaths. So what's the connection or disconnect? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And that's happened really across Canada where you have homes that were just devastated and, you know, within five minutes, uh, there's another home that was untouched. And in this case as well, you have three homes in very close proximity. They all had outbreaks, but um, the two other homes managed to get through without losing a single resident, whereas this one lost 17. So what is it about it? And, you know, I think it's it's difficult to say for sure. Um, some of the research that's already happening is pointing to, you know, the obvious training, good relationship with um, hospital and health authorities, and leadership as well, whether the leadership was there to properly um, handle this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's hard to understand why uh, you would have facilities so close and one be so gutted and another not. And, uh, I think it just all comes down to, um, you know, to the preparation and the training and uh, the leadership, really, of those those institutions. Yeah. Now, well, given where we are now with the numbers and the information we're finding out about how COVID is spreading, uh, the information that you provide in the story from the first stage to where we are now is really critically important that we learn from what what happened. Stuart, thanks uh, thanks very much for the time. It's, uh, it's a fascinating story, very disturbing. Now, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux has been very good to us with his time over the last number of months. I always enjoy speaking with Mr. Giroux. And uh, I have questions for him, like, does the federal government have access to sufficient funds to backstop provinces battling COVID-19, as Mr. Trudeau talked about? And particularly if the uh, pandemic, and let's hope it doesn't, but if it continues well into 2021. Also, the Parliamentary Budget Officer has issued reports critical of the Trudeau government's spending billions of dollars in uh, in secret and i'm also curious about the uh, the provincial debts debts as in multiples which are spiraling again covid in, in, you know affected i was on a website earlier this morning actually it was the mei website montreal economic institute and they showed the provincial debt for quebec and it was right around 275 billion dollars you know, we, these days we just throw these numbers around, like $275 billion debt for a province, trillion dollars for the country, deficit of $400 billion, as though it means nothing. These are massive numbers. And then I just took the stopwatch on my uh, on my phone, and I timed how long it takes 
for Quebec to run up, and just the one province I was looking at, for Quebec to run up another $1,000 in debt. Six seconds. Every six seconds, Quebecers owe another grand. Yves Giroux joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Giroux, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for the time. Always a pleasure. Let, let me start with, uh, with with this question. What are, what are your, or what is your most significant concern or focus right now? What, where are you focused? Well, that's a, a broad question. We're focused mostly on what will the government say in its next fiscal update, uh, especially with regard to the level of spending so far in response to the pandemic and its plans going forward. So it's it's good to have a plan this year, and we, we seem to have a plan that is whatever it takes to support Canadians and businesses. But for what comes next, we don't have a plan, so we don't know what the government plans on doing, um, whether it plans on reducing the level of deficit to more sustainable levels, uh, whether it aims to balance the budget within, within a certain time horizon, or whether the government is real, relatively comfortable with a high level of spending and deficit for a few years, a few additional years. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the fiscal update that the Minister of Finance has promised this fall. And it's running out of time for, uh, for the fall because, as you know, the fall ends uh, slightly before Christmas, so only a month to go before we get there. Yeah. Now, you have concerns about this government, this federal government's spending, uh, without accounting where the money's going. Could you just expand on that first, please? Sure. So the government asked Parliament for extraordinary spending powers and borrowing powers when the pandemic struck in March. So uh, various bills, C-13, C-14, C-15, gave the government extraordinary powers to implement new policies and programs to borrow and to create new entities if need be, transfer money to provinces and so on. But the government also promised that it would be transparent with the powers, how it would use them. And it was up until the House was prorogued in mid-August. And by um, fulfilling that commitment of transparency, the government was providing the, the the House and parliamentarians with every, an update every two weeks on the level of spending to date with on the major programs, the major spending programs, CERB being the main one. So the government was providing these updates every two weeks to the House of Commons Finance Committee and by extension to all parliamentarians and the public. But with the House prorogued, there was no committee to report to, and the government stopped these biweekly reports. I was hoping that these would resume once the, once the House came back, but it has unfortunately not materialized. So that's what I mean when I refer to the lack of transparency on the government for um, the spending that it does on our behalf with respect to COVID-19 supports. So Parliament can't do its job of monitoring where the money's going. It makes it very difficult. So parliamentarians, without these uh, biweekly reports, they have no idea, no clear idea as to how much has been spent so far on the various support programs that the government has established to support Canadians. So they have to rely on independent agents of parliament like me, and I don't have instantaneous access to that information. Or they have to wait until the end of the, of the fiscal year when the government will report on spending uh, 
on a more uh, granular granular basis. But that takes some time. And in the meantime, it's billions of dollars every week that gets spent. Yeah. So then, then the next question is, and this is one that interests everybody because it affects everyone, can the federal government, can we answer this question, can the federal government financially backstop provinces battling COVID? Is there sufficient in the way of funds available, particularly if the pandemic were to accelerate through the winter and through the first months of 2021? There's no way to answer that, or is there? Well, it's difficult to answer that precisely. So, and many many people were asking that same question: Can the government uh, can the government suffer an additional an additional headwind? For example, should the the pandemic uh, last a bit longer than expected, or should there be any other unforeseen economic event? So that's why we updated our fiscal sustainability report that looks at the long-term sustainability, financial sustainability of governments, federal and provincial. And we find that if the spending that's related to COVID-19, which is supposed to be temporary, if it is indeed temporary, the federal government should still be sustainable over the long term and has some wiggle room of about 0.8% of GDP, which amounts to about $19 billion. So the government could still support provinces to that tune without jeopardizing the long-term fiscal sustainability. And that's taking a couple of assumptions under our wings, such as assuming that there's no significant new spending and that there are no major changes to policies and programs once we return to pre-pandemic levels. That's a far-fetched assumption because we know full well that governments have plans and priorities and they like to, to implement them. Right. And, and Canada Revenue Agency has made it very clear to all of us, we may not move forward on assumptions. That's just a joke. <laughs> I wasn't sure for, for a moment. Because <laughs> you and I, you and I have to have at least one joke in our conversation each time, don't we? That's it. We used to talk about beers, but <laughs> it becomes a bit stale if we talk about beer every time. So, I know, yeah, we I have know. to have some fun while we yeah. can. We never really did settle, though, who's buying the beers when you and I go out for those beers. We we never got to that, right? So is, are we both no, going to lean back? We're, are we both going to lean back when the bill arrives? I, I'll be a good guy, and I'll pay. I don't mind. <laughs> okay. In that case, you're on. Uh, Mr. Giroux, back to the back to the serious business here. The provincial debts, we talk about the, you know, the national debt being close to a trillion dollars, the uh, the deficit approaching uh, scarily $400 billion. I know we're some distance away from that. but uh, and, and I also paid very close attention when you said the government is about $19 billion in wiggle room. That's not a lot. But let's bring it into play with the provinces. We have Quebec just flirting with $275 billion in debt. I think Ontario is still over $300 billion in debt. The other provinces are struggling with debt as well. What's the reality? Then it's a, it's a very different picture at the provincial level because provinces as a collective, they, they're not sustainable over the long term. So they have to tighten their belts, collectively speaking, by about $12 billion or 0.5% of GDP. But there are big variations across provinces. Surprisingly, Quebec is on a sustainable footing because they have a high debt, but they also tax their citizens probably much more than anybody else in Canada. Uh, Nova Scotia and Ontario are also on the sustainable path, assuming status quo policies, of course, um, pre-pandemic. 
and the rest of provinces and territories are not sustainable. It means that they they'll have they'll be facing pressures that won't be compensated by other sources of revenues, either own source revenues or federal transfers. And something will have to be done over time to to ensure that they remain sustainable. And in good part, it's due to the magic of uh, transfers um, between the feds and provinces. Yeah. So that transfer reality is in some jeopardy with Alberta's current fiscal reality. We'll be talking to the Premier of Alberta, actually, uh, tomorrow, right about this time, Jason Kenney will be our guest. Let me ask you as well. We've become so accustomed now to talking big numbers, huge numbers. You know, I see $422 billion. It's, yeah, it's another number, so what? And then I remind myself, that's a lot of money. So you have concerns about the transparency of loans distributed by Crown Corporations, which is around $422 billion, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So yeah. what are the concerns that you have? Well, the concerns is that these crown corporations, they've been given unprecedented powers and they've also been given amounts that we have rarely seen before in this country to loan to various institutions, corporations, businesses, and so on. So the Bank of Canada is the exception. They're very transparent. They disclose very regularly what they do on financial markets, their borrowings, the borrowings they undertake for the government, the purchases of bonds they do. So the Bank of Canada is the exception. But the other crown corporations, Export Development Canada, the Business Development Bank, Farm Credit, and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, they have these huge powers to borrow and and lend money to, to businesses with which they have dealings. But they don't disclose a lot of that information. They are happy to disclose that in their annual reports, and that's about it. They don't, they're not very transparent, even though they're loaning tens of billions of dollars on a monthly basis in these very uncertain times. And they, they claim that they won't incur big losses. We have to take them at their at their word for that because there's not a real way to verify that. So we don't know, for example, what are the sensitivity analysis that they undertake when they disperse these loans? What, for example, would happen if there's a a 1% uh, default rate higher than what they, they currently experience? We don't know what that would, how that would impact their balance sheets. And how much taxpayers would be on the hook for in, in that event. So they're not very transparent. They take the approach of trust us, we'll do our best, and don't worry about that, which <laughs> when in, which we're talking about billions of dollars makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it takes me back to my Canada Revenue Agency analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Trust us. You know, if I were to if I were to put that at the bottom of my return for 2020, trust me, I don't think the response would be necessarily positive, and so it shouldn't be positive from us either. But let me come bring this full circle with you, and thank you for spending the extra time with us. How badly do we need then, based on everything you've told us in the last 20 minutes, how badly do we need a true fiscal accounting from this government, this federal government? Well, it depends the extent to which you or we are willing to blindly trust the government to do what's best for us. Um, so if you have no concerns whatsoever with people that you don't know uh, handling billions of dollars and sending you the bill, then 
you can sleep soundly at night. But I'm a bit more skeptical than that. And personally, I I like it when people who administer money on other people's behalf, when they are accountable for that and when they have to regularly provide updates as to what is happening with that money. I personally think that's the best way to ensure that this money is administered as soundly as possible and as honestly as possible. So I think we should all be concerned when there is a lack of transparency because people who have nothing to hide don't tend to to bar, balk at the, the thought of being accountable. And maybe it's just a matter of being very busy with uh, making sure the best outcomes for the country in this pandemic, but it doesn't require lots of efforts to disclose the information that is available. And we know the information keeps uh, keeps a tally of how much it is spending almost on a daily basis. So it shouldn't be that much trouble to disclose that to parliamentarians and no, audience. No, it shouldn't. Uh, one more question for you. What is our national debt now? And what do we know what the deficit actually is? Uh, we don't know what the deficit will be for the current year. We can have an educated guess. It will probably be upwards of $300 billion. Um, the national debt is way above a trillion dollars, but there are various ways of measuring the debt, whether it's the gross debt, whether it's the gross debt minus the financial assets that the government holds because it always has cash balances, or whether it's all that minus the value of the real estate assets it has. So all things considered, it's certainly about a trillion dollars. Listen to this. 36% of people in Britain say they are either uncertain or unlikely to agree to be vaccinated against COVID-19. And I think that's not too dissimilar to what numbers we've heard in this country. We're joined by Professor Melinda Mills. She's the leader of the report at uh, Oxford University, expert in demographic science. And uh, Professor Mills argues open public dialogue is key and that misinformation, which doesn't dismiss people's real vaccine concerns and hesitancy, be addressed. Important to us as well is Professor Mills is from Red Deer. Welcome back to Canada, Professor Mills. Good to talk to you. Uh, thank you, Roy. Nice to see you. Why, why the study in the first place? What caused this? Well, you know, the, the British government here was, was starting to think, um, you know, we've, we've spent so much time thinking about producing the vaccine and um, thinking about how to distribute it and many of these aspects. But they hadn't really looked at, you know, how are we going to communicate this and what are the behavioral factors and what, are, what will be some of the problems with uh, deploying it. And, you know, I think this is just going to be very difficult around the world. And there's just been this unprecedented degree of uncertainty, you know, and, and, and it's really complex. So it's not just one vaccine. It's multiple vaccines. There's more more than, you know, 200 at the moment being developed. And, you know, normally this would take about 10 years and we would know a lot more about them. So we're going to have to communicate about multiple vaccines. But also there's questions about, you know, does it protect us? Uh, will we, you know, will it? People still transmit the virus after they've had it. How long will the protection last? Um, you know, how will it, uh, you know, what are the sort of side effects in different groups? So there's still really a lot of questions about the, the different vaccines at the moment. Yeah, so if I take that number from the UK, 36% say they are uncertain or very unlikely to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. 
do you think, a couple of questions here, do you think that is a firm number? And if it does, does that effectively result in any vaccination effort being unsuccessful as far as protecting the nation's population is concerned? Because I go back to what I read uh, in the, it was a writer's story about your about your study that I read, suggesting there has to be an 80% penetration of the population for a vaccination effort to deliver the best results. Yeah, so, so there's a few things there, you know. So to so this this number, as you were saying, is similar across many different countries. That people are, you know, there's there's going to be always that small group that uh, say that they won't take it for for various reasons. But then there's this big undecided or uncertain group that are trying to understand it and gather more information. And that's the group that we have to reach um, because. There's been this, um, you know, there's been anti-vaxxers or, you know, anti-vaccine campaigns um, since since the 1800s when smallpox uh, was first, in, you know, introduced. And then we had this case of Andrew uh, Wakefield, who, who, you know, that study has been thoroughly discounted and retracted, but he made a link between um, measles, um, the measles vaccine um, with autism. And, you know, this information continuously comes up in these conspiracy theories, and they're, they're sort of building on all of our fears. So they have these really straightforward explanations. They use a lot of emotion. Um, and it's, the idea is to just uh, merchandise doubt and uh, distrust in science, pharmaceutical companies, and government. So that happens, and they play on our fears. And, you know, on the other side, people really have legitimate fears and questions now. So they want to know, okay, so normally it takes a decade and this has been developed in a year. You know, what does that mean? Um, you know, and it'll be rolled out to different priority groups and I won't be first and, you know, it'll take a long sure. time. So yeah. all of these kind of questions have to be, you know, openly discussed. So we're talking with the British government and, you know, different governments to say, come on, we have to start this dialogue now, um, you know, and, and start to manage uh, expectations and fill that knowledge void before the misinformation does. Well, you're, you're actually, I mean, you're saying um, in, in your response is there should be an open dialogue model for dissemination of information about vaccines and don't ignore people who are now saying they mistrust vaccines. Speak to that. And do you really have, I mean, I, I think that's a great approach to take, but do you have broad support for that position within the medical and political communities? Well, you know, we're starting to um, here here um, in the UK, starting to get that support because you know, what they've been doing, and I think a lot of governments have been doing this, that they produce these websites or, you know, something that, you know, explains all the information in great detail. But guess what? That's not very engaging. And you have to actually go out and find it and read this information. It's often quite technical terms and medical terms, um, whereas the misinformation people, they, they're on your Facebook page, they're on Twitter, they're, you know, all over, and, and they engage with you. And, um, you know, it's shareable, it's visual, it's, it's lots of things. So we really have to, you know, start talking with people and, um, and not, you know, and then there's this tendency to say that, oh, they're just people don't understand, you know, it's safe and discount that. No, people want to understand, but they need to get more information and dialogue. And, I mean, people also have to know, they have to be able to spot and, you know, and, and even report that misinformation, you know, a recent survey in the U.S. found that about 40% of people were resharing misinformation without even realizing that it was misinformation. Um, you know, and, and another thing is, you know, the media companies, they really have to start, you know, monitoring this um, because these are, this is, you know, risk to public health. 
And I think, you know, some of the some of the big companies are starting to crack down, but it was really only after some some large advertisers such as Unilever and Mars just said, listen, we don't want to be advertising next to these um, conspiracy theories. So they withdrew, you know, their advertisements and their money, which is the big profit model. And, uh, you know, and and then that's when they started to, to monitor this and actually remove that information. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on this front. And, you know, and, and we all want to get out of this. But in order to yeah, get do. out of it, we need, well, we do want you know, you know it. it's, it's, it's not just about vaccines. It's about vaccinations. You know, and I, you know, so we, we really need to. So, so to, can, may I ask you, may I ask you, Professor Mills, uh, to just uh, address that, please? The difference between vaccine and vaccination. I mean, I. Right. So. For my brain. Yeah. Okay. Vaccine. Everybody's been focusing on. We've got the Pfizer vac- vaccine and the AstraZeneca ones, and everybody's been focusing on the science of that and the different trials and control groups and producing it. And you've probably heard about the cold chain technology, you know, some yes, of them yes. have to be yeah. distributed in minus 70 and you know, things like that. Um, but so that's, that's easy for us in Canada. You know that. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I've made that joke a few times, actually. <laughs> I'm sure you <laughs> but, uh, Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, um, uh, especially coming from Alberta. But, um, yeah. yeah, so, but, but then vaccinations, that's actually the take up, you know. So, so uh, you know, you can produce. You know, it's like with any technology, you can produce the self-driving car, you can produce the vaccine, but actually people have to adopt it. They have to trust it. They have to, you know, be able to think, okay, this is something I, you know, will, will take. And, and, you know, and, and, and once people, people are very reasonable, you know, they, they all want to get the economy going. They want to get back to normal. Um, but we will have to get, you know, a certain threshold of people and the efficacy. So, so how effective the vaccine is for the, for the Pfizer one was, was over 90%. And I don't think anybody was expecting it to be that high, you know, so that means you could technically, um, you know, uh, vaccinate a lower proportion of people within the population. But, um, you know, you still have to get a large group of people vaccinated. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating information, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, would you come back if we, uh, when we have further discussions about uh, vaccines and vaccination? Sure, Roy. I'd love to come back. Uh, yeah, always interesting to have a discussion on this. Okay. Thanks so much for the time, Professor Mills. Thank you. Professor Melinda Mills from um, Oxford University via Red Deer, Alberta. Uh, Dan, before we talk to Saki about her situation, would you just address the, the issue generally of entrepreneurs, particularly new ones, slipping through the cracks of the sports system? Yeah, it's been a tough week. I have had literally dozens of emails from business owners that are not qualifying for any of the government support programs, the wage subsidy, the the new rent subsidy that's about to come on stream, or the SIBA loan program. Because their businesses are new and started in 2020, most businesses, most of those programs have rules that you have to have a 2019 tax return for your business, a business number established as of a certain date, or payroll that started as a certain period at a certain period, mostly before March the first. And for many businesses, of course, they were in the process of starting starting up, uh, and therefore they are disqualified, automatically disqualified from any of the programs that the federal government has offered other business owners. Imperfect as they are, they have at least helped some business owners make it this far. So, Saki, you're one of the business owners, and you invested a lot of your personal capital into this. You're one of the business owners Dan was just talking about. No no subsidies, no support. 
That's correct, because the wage and rent subsidy that they use is the same criteria compared to your 2020 revenue for a particular month with the revenue earned in either the same month or in 2019 or revenue earned in January and February 2020 to calculate your revenue drop percentage. Now that use, we only opened up in September, so we don't, we don't, we fall through the crack again. Even though we had a business number, uh, you know, prior, uh, you know, we, but the problem is, again, we're falling through the crack. So now you've, you've contacted Mr. Trudeau, you've contacted Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, because you're located in Ontario. You've contacted the Mayor of Toronto, John Tory. I'm, I'm sure they've all gotten back to you with encouraging responses, haven't they? No, not a single person has reached out to me. And you are the business person who was prepared, still is prepared, has paid the money to operate 10 restaurant franchises, to hire people and uh, and create, create employment. And you were also going to be there at the time governments want to collect taxes. That's correct. Um, so if somebody were to say to you, well, you have a restaurant, why don't you just put in a patio? What do you say? I'm on an intersection where we it's very unsafe and there's no space for us to have a patio. And we're a breakfast and lunch place, so we're not a place where, you know, in the evening you're gathering to socialize or anything. And um, and it's transparent. All the, you know, the windows are, you know, you, you can see through, but we can't have a patio. It's unsafe to have a patio. And one thing that you sent me, a question that you sent me, which I found very interesting, you wrote, how is it okay to have enclosed patios, but we can't have indoor dining? What's the difference? And now somebody may say, well, they do have indoor dining as long as you're six feet apart or 10 feet apart. Now it's going to be limited in Ontario to 10 people in a restaurant. But what do you say to that when people say, well, you know, you can have indoor dining. What's the response? The response is I can't because, I mean, I have the plexiglass. and I mean, the, the whole thing is keeping everybody safe. We understand keeping people you know, safe. But we've gone beyond the requirements of keeping people six feet away from each other. We've had the plexiglass put in. We've done uh, all the sanitizing, you know, above the requirement of the government. So I don't see how, you know, somebody being in a marquee and now, especially with the weather being cold, you know, people have got it all enclosed all around. How is that any different to having an indoor dining area? Yeah, and you're not allowed to open. That's it. That's no, it, right? Cut, cut and dry. No, cut and dry. Ten people. No, we we can't. And takeaway is all that we have, and we are. You know, we're not even surviving on that. And you and you also, when you and I talked, you made the point that you're not a restaurant where people will sit down and socialize for an hour, an hour and a half. That's not the kind of restaurant you were hoping to have an operation. Tell us about that. Yes, because we're a breakfast and lunch place where people are going to come in for pancakes. Uh, they're going to come in for their eggs, their crepes, their waffles. So people, you know, are just coming in to have a meal and then they're going to leave. They're not going in there to socialize or party or anything like that. It literally is just coming in to have a meal. You know, Dan, when I hear uh, Saki talk and I spoke with her at length off the air the other day. And uh, you and I have talked so many times since uh, this COVID business began. I hate that little bug. Um, 
when I when I when I when I know that she sent letters to the Prime Minister, the Premier, the Mayor of Toronto, nobody bothers to reply. When uh, she's an entrepreneur who has put her own money into a business effort, she's prepared. She's hired people. She, she's a contributor, and she's just sort of pushed to the side with what appears to me to be bureaucratic indifference. Am I off base, or am I am I missing something here? No, and and you know what really got my goat this week is the prime minister said to premiers across the country. Uh, and I understand that what he was trying to say, but he, he, the point he was making is, premiers, don't skimp on business shutdowns. Go ahead with the closures that you may have in mind. Please don't do that because of the impact that it will have on the business community alone, because we, the federal government, have the backs of the business community. We've got the support programs now in place to support small and medium-sized businesses through the pandemic, so if the governments, if the provinces do need businesses to close, go ahead and do that. And, you know, it, that's only partially true. Yes, there are a couple of programs that are working well. The wage subsidy is working reasonably well for most businesses. But there remain, like Saki, hundreds, if not hundreds, hundreds, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of businesses that are slipping through the cracks of all of those programs. You and I have discussed a few of them, Roy. Uh, the rent support program that the federal government is is, uh, is is putting in place is not ready yet. The wage subsidy itself, while working reasonably well, in the spring, the wage subsidy delivered, if you had a 30% revenue loss, you've got a 75% wage subsidy. Now that same business would get a 30, uh, 24% wage subsidy. The SIBA loan program expansion has been has been delayed. We are seeing businesses close today. I, I, you know, your listeners on CGO in Winnipeg know that essentially it's a March-style lockdown of every business, including all of the retail sector, once again. And the support programs aren't there to, to, to have the backs of the business owners, and that's what I think is, is so infuriating right now. So for the individual business owner who's in that reality, it's Armageddon. It, it really is. It is so disappointing. I mean, I've, I've talked to... Probably a half dozen business owners in tears this week alone talking to me about the, they're seeing their life streams crumble between their fingers. It is, it is deeply, deeply depressing. Now, look, I mean, COVID is, it needs to be taken seriously. But, you know, there is a bit of a change in thinking on the part of the business community. In the spring, businesses understood they needed to shut down. They needed blunt instruments to, to, to try to calm things down, and the government didn't really know what they were dealing with. But flip ahead to today, this, the data doesn't really support shutdown of indoor dining. And it's not supporting the shutdown of, of indoor retail. Uh, it, there's mixed data on that at best. Businesses are feeling like they are being used as an example to send the message to the public that they still need to take COVID-19 seriously. And that's what's really, really worrisome to me right now. If you, if you, if your life stream, if your, if your business income and your future is being eliminated, to send a message to somebody else, you can imagine why a business owner would feel so, so hurt right now. Yeah, the entrepreneurial fire burns in some people, in many people. It's just something that motivates them. They and they're creators, and they are sustainers of opportunity for our communities in the narrow, perhaps sense, but then also in the broad national sense. So, Saki, uh, you're a you're a, a multi-unit franchisee, which means you have more than one restaurant you're ready to go with, right? 
We've opened one and we're uh, set to open another nine. And that's what we've signed up. We signed up for 10 locations uh, last in July 2019. So you're in Toronto. That's but correct. restaurants that are not in Toronto or outside Toronto, they are doing okay. They're doing, you know, they've got business. And the people who would be your customers, clients, are going there because you can't open. That's correct. It must drive you mad. It does because we were open for 10 days. That's all we got, Roy, was 10 days when we were told that we had to close. And that was on the 10th of um, October, just before Thanksgiving. Now, we'd prepped prepped food. We had staff on. We had 32 employees when we started off. Now, can you... Now, if you think about 10 locations, that would be 320 employees, right? So now we're barely holding on to between six to eight employees at the moment. And you're hoping for? What are you hoping for? But we need help. We need help with weight subsidies. We need help with the rent subsidies. You know, we're barely holding on, you know, with the thread at the moment. I mean, 10 days is nothing. And like I said, you know, we've prepped. We've we've spent, you know, nearly a million dollars on this location. And we have, you know, we have our um, loans to pay. We have, you know, it's just like everything. I'm, I'm a human being. And I understand this pandemic is about... But at the same time, how do I survive this if I have no help? And Dan, you hear this again and again and again. You know, we've taken, since the pandemic began, Roy, the, the, now, the new count is 65,000 calls to the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses offices across Canada from business owners, just like Saki, talking about what's going on with their business. and. It's to the point where we've had to provide our staff with some counseling because the calls are, as you can imagine, depressing yeah. moment after moment after moment. Yeah. Um, but so many business owners are hurting. There are some support programs in place. I am encouraged uh, that uh, that Christy Freeland, for example, has has uh, designed uh, a really good rent support program that is coming on stream. It does have extra benefits for those that are shut, shut down a second time. But it's right now in the Senate. It's like it hasn't passed. So nothing. No money. No money's been handed out, right? It's, it's a, right now. It's a promise. Right now, it's a it's, commitment that has been not 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 kept. It's it's right. Well, there was a program for earlier months, but it was a disaster. We pointed right. that out over we talked and over. About you that guys many spoke times. about it. Yeah. That program's now defunct. But there's been nothing for October rent. Nothing for November rent. And I'm really worried that the program may not be in place for no for December rent. And, and gosh, you know, we are going to start to, we've already seen lots of business closures, but we're just at the tip of the iceberg of that. We're going to see more and more boarded up shops. We, we expect one in seven small businesses to fail before this is over. Well, remember, 68% of employment in this country, let's private sector employment is provided by the small business sector, small and medium business sector. Uh, Saki, what happens to you? I, I can barely survive them. We're going to be out of business as well before we've even got started. So it's very worrying. I am absolutely so worried. And I mean, like I said, I wrote to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I've written to Doug Ford. I've written to John Tory explaining 
that we, you know, you've asked us to close down and we understand for, you know, this pandemic, if we have to, you know, close, fair enough. But you need to help us because we still have to pay our rent. We still have to pay our wages. So how am I supposed to survive? How do we pay our, you know, uh, utility bills? How do we pay our insurance? How do we pay anything when we've got no revenues coming in? And I and you're, uh, and you were prepared that your plan was to do this completely independently. You were going to put you put your money into it. You got your franchises. You were going to go into business, take all the risk, do the hiring, pay the taxes. This was your intention. Then COVID came in, and you just didn't make the cut as far as this help is concerned. And so now you're left on the outside looking in, saying, "What's going to happen to us?" I think most people can deduce what will happen to you if you don't get support. And the thing was, we were supposed to go into construction in March and open in June. And the pandemic and the closures came. So we weren't able. We were in Toronto where all the closures were. So we weren't allowed to do it. So when we were able to do construction, which was July, and then we opened up in September, we had 10 days. Again, no help. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.